Today on Abounding Grace from Pastor Ed Taylor. You know, we don't need to go looking for a fight. We don't need to go prove anything. We, we don't need to go and try to defend ourselves. There are those times where we need to make a conscious decision to avoid. Actually, the Bible says to avoid those that cause division. The Bible specifically gives us instruction on who to avoid. And I would say if there are people that want to fight and people want to, ar- want to argue, it's wise to avoid them. However, it's not wise to avoid people altogether. You see, when we are hurt, whether we're hurt in the church or we're hurt by family or friends, there is a tendency to respond by removing ourselves and just say, you know what, I'm done with it. This is amazing grace. I think it's safe to say most of us want to be well-liked by others. But maybe you've noticed, if you live for the Lord and walk as Jesus walked, not everyone will be patting you on the back. In fact, at times, we'll be hated and abandoned just as Jesus was. But we can learn a lot from how Jesus responds to such treatment. Today on Abounding Grace, that comes to our attention through a study in John chapter 7. Let's head there now as Pastor Ed Taylor begins. Take your Bibles, open them with me to John's Gospel, chapter 7. If you happen to come today without a Bible, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that as our gift to you. Uh, Here at Calvary, you're going to need a Bible. Uh, One way or the other, I prefer and I suggest a physical Bible so you can write notes in it and and use it. Uh, But I know many of you use your phones and devices, and that's great. Uh, Just hope you don't get a text or a news update in the middle of it uh, while you're reading it. And you go, oh, what's happening in the world today with the Bible? Your battery doesn't run out. You can take it anywhere. And it's something that sends a message when you're opening the Word. So however you choose uh, to use it. We encourage you to open your Bibles, John chapter 7. We start a new chapter, but in order to start the new chapter, let's go back a little bit and remember and recall what happened at the end of chapter 6, the last time we were together. I draw your attention to verse 66, where it says that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You'll recall that many were following Jesus with the wrong motives with the wrong desires, but instead of sending them away, Jesus took the opportunity to teach them. And in this case, he shared some hard words with them, that if you're going to follow me, here's, here's what it looks like. You need to take all of me. Do You need a full commitment. He, he used the phrase, you need to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And it was hard for them. It was a difficult thing to hear. They, they were following for food, and they were following for miracles, but Jesus wanted them to follow for the right reasons, and he challenged them and teach the word to them patiently and lovingly, and they didn't like it. So what happened? From that time, many of his disciples, people that were learning and following him, walked, they went back, and they walked with him no more. That was enough. It was enough. I tried to draw a picture, and I want you to draw a picture in your mind of what that might look like following Jesus. 
Now, of course, in a room like this, we, we, we would just imagine that half of the people got up and left, like right now, just in this moment. Half, like when you were walking in, we, if we would have set this up, we'd have given some of you a red piece of paper and some of you a blue piece of paper. And then we'd say, okay, you know, we'd flash something up on the screen, some red. And then the people with red would just get up and walk out without a word. They just get up, take your Bible, close it, turn your back and walk out. And then those of us that are left are watching it all happen. It would be very disruptive. It would be very discouraging. If we didn't tell you ahead of time, you wouldn't even know what was happening. And, and that's where the disciples are. They've got literally hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people following Jesus. And then with some hard words, most of them, or it says many of them, got up and moved and never, they went back and didn't follow him any longer. And so if we were to do that here, let's say, you know, five, six, seven hundred people just get up and walk out. For those of you that remain, as everyone's walking out, everybody's on their way out, I would say to you, well, well are you guys going to go too? I mean, is that, is that where you're at? Like, was the words so hard for you? Are you going to leave me too? Are you going to leave this church too? Are you going to leave this sanctuary too? And Jesus is saying, he looks at his disciples in the eye and he says, are you guys going to leave too? Are my words too hard for you? Are you not willing to make a full commitment? All of that is encompassed with that phrase, as you notice in verse 67, when he says, Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you also want to go away? I mean, that, that's a pretty powerful question, don't you think? Do you want to go away? It's deep. It's even difficult to hear. Now, I understand that question when the enemy throws it our way or our own flesh. I mean, we all face things, don't we? Where there's that whisper in your ear, if you will, that says, why don't you just leave, just go Christianity's not working out for you. It's not what they promised. You know, somebody along the way has promised that when I became a Christian, everything would be great and I would prosper and I'd have everything. But look at my life. It's a mess. It's difficult. And, you know, maybe this Christian thing isn't for me. Well, if you were ever told that, they told you the wrong thing because we learned, didn't we, that when you follow Jesus, you share in everything that's Jesus. And he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It was great difficulty for him. His life ended on the cross. And what was his reward for good? What was his reward for love? What was his reward for service? It was crucifixion. And we learned, didn't we, that when you follow someone, you share in those that you follow. And when those tough times come, they're certainly the enemy. I get that. I mean, there are times even in our own lives. Maybe it's just for a brief moment, but there are times in our lives where we're just like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. If you haven't faced that yet, it's coming. It's a challenge on your faith. It's a challenge. It's, it's not, you know, it's like, man, I, I don't, I don't want to be challenged that way. But it happens. But coming from Jesus, it's even more probing, isn't it? Jesus, look at me. He looks at me, my Savior, the one I've committed my life to, the one that died and rose again for me. He would look at me and say, are you too? Are you going to leave too? I have to say, in the entirety of my walk with the Lord, that this month will be 24 years that I've heard that question a few times. I've heard it from the enemy. I've heard it from the flesh. And I believe I've heard it from the Lord personally too. Where you get into that place where there are waves of trials and difficulties. Just, just difficult. It's just hard. And, and it's like the Lord saying, here you are. There you are, Ed, right in the midst. And you can insert your name. There you are. And the Lord just comes to you and says, are you going to leave too? Is this what it's going to, is this it? Have you finally met the end of the road? And what happens, you like Peter and I like Peter well up inside and say, well, it's the very next verse, 68, where are we going to go? What do you mean? Are you, I'm not going anywhere. Where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life, Jesus. You are my all in all. And I know things are tough right now, and I know things are difficult right now, and I know all kinds of thoughts are flowing through my mind, but I know this. 
You alone have the words of eternal life, and you are worthy of my full dedication. I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking it out with you, Lord, and you are my strength, and you are my song, and you are the very foundation of my life. Peter would say it this way, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, verse 69, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's with this backdrop now, chapter 7, verse 1 opens, after these things. You see that? After these things. Whenever you you come to something like, after these things, you want to, after what things? The things that just transpired. All that's been going on in chapter 6. Specifically, all those that are walking away, but given the opportunity for the disciples to say, no way, we're not going anywhere. You know, the Bible says that. Peter wrote it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He said it a different way. He said, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Be diligent to make sure that you're following Jesus. Be diligent to make sure that Jesus is your... Be, dil- be even more diligent, even in the face of great trial and difficulty or in great darkness of our society. There, there is an effort and an energy that's required for us to make our calling and election sure, to be reminded of our salvation, to confess that before the Lord. You'll recall also in the life of Paul when he was on his way to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. On his way, he was, he was convinced that God wanted him to be in Jerusalem. He believed it was a calling from the Lord. But people would come to him and say, oh, no, no, Paul, you can't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you there. Chains await you there. Why would you want to go to Jerusalem? You can do so much more, so many other places. Don't go to Jerusalem. And yet, he said, no way. Not only that, not only did he say no way, he said this. He said it this way in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But none of these things move me. None of these things move me. I'm going to Jerusalem, and if they're going to kill me there, so what? That's what I'm going. I'm going because God wants me there. And if chains await me, then I'm going into chains. And if death awaits me, then I'm going into death. Because none of these things move me. It's a deep, deep sense of trust and reliance upon the Lord. And life will do that. It will strengthen our faith. After these things, notice Jesus walked in Galilee, for he didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. So John takes us back into the area of the Galilee. And in Jerusalem at the same time, One of the three main feasts are taking place, this Feast of Tabernacles. The other are known as the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost. For the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a really cool time for the family because they would build these little booths and they would sleep in them overnight. And as a family, they would talk about the faithfulness of God that God showed to the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. It was a time of memorial. It was a time to remember. It was an exciting time. And so as they're celebrating toward the end of September, the time frame is about the end of September, early October for eight days, they would live in these little booths and would recount the faithfulness of God. So encouraging. Now notice it says in verse 1 that Jesus didn't want to walk in Judea. Why? Because the Jews sought to kill him. He made a conscious decision to avoid murderers. I would say that's a good idea, wouldn't you? I mean, if you knew people were after you, he made a conscious decision to avoid them. And yet, at the same time, he didn't abandon people altogether, just a, certain sort, just a certain group of people, people that wanted to kill him. And I think from that we get a practical application for our lives. You know, we don't need to go looking for a fight. We don't need to go prove anything. We, we don't need to go and try to defend ourselves. 
There are those times where we need to make a conscious decision to avoid. Actually, the Bible says to avoid those that cause division. The Bible specifically gives us instruction on who to avoid. And I would say if there are people that want to fight and people want to argue, it's wise to avoid them. However, it's not wise to avoid people altogether. You see, when we are hurt, whether we're hurt in the church or we're hurt by family or friends, there is a tendency to respond by removing ourselves and just say, you know what, I'm done with it. And I mean, for example, if you were hurt in the church, maybe you were hurt in this church. Maybe you're looking on on the internet right now and you're watching on the internet or on the radio and you're like, oh, I'm not going back to Calvary because they, they hurt me there. Avoiding people and just kind of connecting to church online or on the radio is not a wise decision. You know, the Bible gives us really good instructions on how to mend relationships and how to make things right. And to avoid people, you know, completely. You see, Jesus, he just, he just, we watched Jesus, he was just abandoned by people, but Jesus didn't turn around and abandon people. That's encouraging. He was abandoned by people, but his response wasn't to abandon people. Like, like he was hurt, but he didn't retaliate and hurt in return. And I believe that's a great application for us, because while he didn't go to Judea, you'll see in a moment, yet, he didn't leave people altogether. He didn't go up into the mountains and say, I'm just going to go seek a father in the mountains and never deal with people ever again. I mean, all the time that I poured into them and all these people, are that, that wasn't the heart of Jesus. Jesus was going to love and lead the people that wanted him to love and lead them. And he was satisfied with that. And he didn't go chase them. He didn't go after them. He committed them to the father where they belonged. You see, when you're talking with people and you're ministering to people, there is a time where, and there is a time when you come to the point where you have to let them go. Jesus put it this way. You don't throw pearl before swine. And they're just come. I don't know when that time is. I wish I could put it together very specifically, but there's just a time when you got to let it go. And you got to let them go and trust the Lord with the situation and not continue to keep passing swirl be uh, pearls before swine but really trusting in the Lord in a deeper way through the situation. Not giving up on people completely and not really giving up on people in particular, but just removing yourself from the situation and knowing that God is going to do. Because even in letting people go, you continue to walk in their region like Jesus does here. You continue to be available. You continue to be, he, he was still there. He didn't go into Judea. He stayed in the Galilee region and he remained available while the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now a couple things we need to get in this section. First of all, notice verse 3. It opens up with that phrase, his brothers. Notice down in verse 5, for even his brothers. Did you know that the Bible teaches us that Jesus had both half-brothers and half-sisters within the family of Joseph and Mary. And unlike a very popular and accepted teaching that isn't biblical or true within Romanism or within Roman Catholicism, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. After the birth of Jesus miraculously, Mary and Joseph had normal, intimate, marital relations that resulted in brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters, because they didn't share the father. Joseph was not Jesus' father. But for his siblings, these brothers and sisters, they were half-brothers and sisters. And Jesus grew up in a home with siblings. You go, Ed, how can you say that? 
I'm glad you asked. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Let's see what the Bible says. You see, this is an example throughout the scriptures of how traditions and the teachings of men can overshadow and even overtake the clear teaching of the Bible. And I just want to show you before we get into the rest of the text. Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, and he grew up with them. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. Matthew 13, verse 54 says, And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Who's that a reference to, church? Joseph. Is he not his mother named Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They're making an observation. He grew up with Joseph and Mary. He's got brothers and sisters. Who does this guy think he is? Well, where did he get all the knowledge from? Well, we know. And he declared he's God in human flesh. We know where he got it from. Turn over to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Again, we need to be very careful that we search the scriptures when we're told something. Uh, when man's tradition seems to be so rooted and so popular... It's not true. Matthew cha or Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Same scenario, different author. Whole, same Holy Spirit inspiring it. It says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Again, some will come and they'll try to, as you're studying this, they'll say, well, you know, those words are generic words. They mean cousins. It doesn't mean cousins. These are very clear references between brothers and sisters, and they're even named. And we know even by further evidence that the people that we're observing are making that observation. We saw this guy grow up. We know about, we know his brothers, we know his sisters. Now, just for a minute, think about what it must have been like to grow up. You think you grew up with the perfect sibling? Think about growing up with Jesus. I mean, he was perfect in every way. Never got in trouble. You're always getting busted. Jesus is over there enjoying his soup, you know. It's like, yeah, you guys are messed up, but I'm perfect, you know. It's like, but without any pride or any of that weird, I mean, it was obvious. It was obvious that there was something special about Jesus all the way growing up. He never sinned. So all the things that we experience with our siblings, you would have never experienced with Jesus. And yet, back in John chapter 7, his brothers still don't believe in him. They grew up with him, but they still don't believe in him. Now, you Bible students, you know that later after the resurrection, his brothers do believe in him, and they do commit their lives to him. Even James ends up writing a book of the Bible after the resurrection. But at this point, this season in his ministry, it's very clear, verse 5, even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, why does John want us to know this? It doesn't seem to fit the flow of the text here. It wouldn't make a difference one way or the other unless he wants to highlight for us that the counsel that they give in verses 3 and 4 is unbelief. It's counsel that's not from the Lord. These guys that are giving their brother advice are giving him very worldly advice, very obvious advice. And it makes sense. It, it's logical advice. It, it, it makes sense. It's pragmatic. It's practical. And it goes something like this. Hey, Jesus, you want everybody to know you? You don't hide yourself in the Galilee. You go up into the region of Judea and, and present yourself. I mean, if you're supposed to be popular and you're the coming Messiah and you want everybody to know that, then hiding yourself doesn't make any sense. You need to go up. You need to go to this feast. There's so many people there. 
man, it makes sense. And it's very practical, very logical, and it makes sense, except that it's not counsel from God. This isn't the will. We know it's not the will of God because Jesus says so in verse 6. My time has not yet come. This is an important point that we can't miss. This is good advice, if you will. It's, they're, he's not tell, they're not telling him to do anything sinful here. But they're not hearing from God. We would call this worldly advice. You know, advice in the world. Things that just make sense. A blog that you read, some business book that you picked up, where it just makes sense, but it's not from the Lord. And this is the kind of advice, friends, that we want to stay away from, no matter how much it makes sense, and no matter how it seems to add up, and no, even if it comes from someone that you love and respect. His brothers don't believe, yet they're giving him advice. And you want to be very careful. Don't miss this. The advice isn't from God, it's not from the Lord, and it's really not right at all. It's advice to go up and make yourself known. You know, go up. This is, their, this is what they're saying. You go up to the feast so you can become popular. Bad advice. Jesus doesn't need anyone's help to become popular. You're listening to Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. His message titled, Only God's Opinion Matters, can be heard again online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. So, Pastor Ed, as we closed, you cautioned us to steer clear of worldly advice. But the question is, how do we discern between good and bad advice? Well, you know, Lori, that word worldly can be interpreted and misinterpreted in a lot of different ways. But I would want to clarify that worldly would be that which is the antithesis of godly. And worldly wisdom would not have the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It wouldn't have the characteristics of the wisdom of God. Remember in James, James told us that if we lack wisdom, uh, we can ask of God and he will give to us wisdom and that he would give it liberally. And then later on in the same book, James would say, who is wise, right? You know, God is going to be giving wisdom. Who's understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct. This is James 3, verse 13 and following. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Then he gives a distinction. He says, if you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. He gives some characteristics of bad advice, bad wisdom, bad direction. He says, where envy, self-seeking, confusion are, every evil thing will be there. And then he gives the, the distinctions in verse 17. This is James 3, 17. He says, this is wisdom from above. It's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the easy answer, of course, is, hey, look, good advice is going to be biblical. It's going to reflect the character of God. But I think James knocks it out of the park here. Don't you agree? He knocks it out of the park here. He says, look, this is some things to look for. These are some things to watch out for, even from the lips of other believers. Yes, even from the lips of pastors, this kind of nastiness can come out. We're just going to come back to the Lord, come back to his word, 
and he will lead us. Thanks for those words of wisdom. You know, it's one thing to get married and a whole other matter to stay that way. And today we'd like to recommend a book written by Steve Carr called Married and How to Stay That Way. It contains a wealth of practical solutions all based in the Bible. Written in a counseling style with practical encouragements from start to finish. It even includes discussion questions at the end of each chapter and a study guide. It's a great book to go through with your spouse or in a small group Bible study. And we'll gladly send you a copy for a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. And thank you for remembering us in your prayers and your giving to the Lord. Your gift, whatever the size, will serve to help us reach thousands with the message of Christ. Reach us toll free at 877-30-GRACE. Again, that's 877-30-GRACE. You can also request this and other resources online at calvaryco.store. If you just like to make a donation and you're not interested in the pick of the month, you can just go online to AboundingGraceRadio.com. Connect with us through social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. There's a link to each page at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Another study in the Gospel of John coming up next time on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. May God richly bless you with His abounding grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora. 